I'm Pippa Kelly. Welcome to the third series of Well I Know Now, in which I talk to people affected by dementia in various ways. Since launching my podcast during our first COVID lockdown last year, I've chatted to people living with dementia, people caring for loved ones, to artists, authors, broadcasters, cartoonists and actors, representing, recording and charting the lives of those with the condition. I've spoken to the chief executives and founders of dementia organisations, big and small, and each and every one of my guests has taught me something new about the condition and how it affects us all, about myself, about life and what's important in it. We've mulled over what we know now that we didn't before dementia came into our lives. My mum lived with vascular dementia for her last 10 years. Were I to sum up one of the main things that I know now that I didn't this time last year, and what a strange, unsettling and isolating year it's been. It's the huge power of connections, of real skin-to-skin human connections, of bear hugs and whispers of touches, and what we mean to each other and give to each other just by being there. It's often the seemingly smallest things that matter most. The poet Sylvia Plath wrote, Well, I know now a little more about how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. Dementia teaches you this, too. My guest today is here to talk to me about his father, who died a few months ago of dementia, aged 78. His dad was a legend. It's an overused phrase, but he was. I know nothing about the sport he played, He was a footballing great. Footballing's not my game. But even I know his name. Anyone over a certain age can't fail to. My mum adored him. She didn't watch much football either, but she loved the cheeky chappy with his famous gap-toothed grin, who, having played every minute of England's victorious 1966 World Cup, celebrated his team's 4-2 win over Germany by dancing a jig on the Wembley pitch with a trophy in one hand and his false teeth in the other. I'm talking, of course, about Nobby Stiles. His son, John, who joins me today, says that when his dad was living with dementia, he used to drive from Doncaster to visit him with knots in his stomach. I felt sick. It was a living nightmare to see such a lovely man disappear in such a brutal way. Many of us know exactly what John means. Norbert Peter Stiles was born in Collyhurst, a working-class suburb of Manchester. The son of an undertaker and a machinist, he followed Manchester United, played for England schoolboys at the age of 15, and in 1959 fulfilled his childhood dream and joined his beloved team as an apprentice. The midfielder earned his first team debut a year later and was an energetic tackler, feeding his forward line of Bobby Charlton, George Best and Dennis Law helping them win the first division title and catching the eye of England manager Alf Ramsey. Stiles debuted for his country against Scotland at Wembley in April 1965, but his aggressive ball-winning technique didn't please everyone. I got slaughtered in the papers, absolutely slaughtered, Nobby said, but he never let the criticism put him off. And nor did the England manager, who threatened to resign when the sport's governing body demanded that he drop Styles for the 1966 World Cup quarter-final against Argentina, following a robust challenge in the final group game against France. Ramsey would later say 
that he had five world-class players and Nobby, a great reader of the game, was one of them. A national star then, but also a hero in his home city of Manchester. Styles made almost 400 appearances for the Red Devils, helping them win two league titles as well as the European Cup in 1968. His later managerial career never equaled his success on the field. John says his dad was too nice to be a manager and he had some low times. Others, though, saw his strengths. United invited him to be team coach and in the early 90s, he nurtured the likes of Ryan Giggs, Gary Neville and David Beckham from the academy to the first team. Fair to say, even I know those names. But in 2002, Nobby suffered a heart attack. And a year later, aged 61, he began to show signs of what was later to be diagnosed as a mixture of vascular and Alzheimer's dementia. As his health worsened, so too did his finances, and he was forced to sell his World Cup winner's medal and other memorabilia. At one point, his bank card was declined at a cash point for insufficient funds. It seems almost unbelievable that it should come to this for such a sporting great. Following Nobby's death, the Stiles family are speaking publicly about dementia's terrible toll on not just an individual, but a family, and about the unfairness of a system that sees those with other diseases being given free NHS care, while those with dementia have to pay. Having long suspected that Nobby's dementia was caused by the innumerable headings he made during his career, the family made the brave decision to donate his brain to research into the links between the disease and the sport. In an emotional Zoom call a few weeks ago, neuropathologist Dr. Willie Stewart confirmed their fear. The Stiles family may have been vindicated, but they're angry because way back in 2002, West Bromwich striker Jeff Astle was named as the first British footballer known to have died from repeatedly heading the ball. Yet until recently, no research had been done into the link. That's almost 20 years of players, men and women, at risk with no restrictions, unprotected, uninformed, says Nobby's son John, himself a former professional footballer. There is a cancer in football of denial and defence. These players need help and they need it now. And there's been virtually no help. That's a disgrace. So John Styles, a very warm welcome to well, I know now. Thank you, Pippa. And now, John, I want to talk to you today about your campaign to tackle English football's failure to properly address this issue of dementia among former players and and uh, and for the disease to be treated like any other so that families aren't left to pay for and fend for themselves. But first, I want to talk to you about your dad, the sporting mm. legend that he was, of course. Um, but more importantly, the dad that he was, the family man, the man himself. So... Can you just tell me a bit about your Manchester childhood and your dad? Yes, um, my dad was really just my dad to us. He wasn't this, um, if you like, footballing icon to us. When he came home, the football was left outside. Um, if you went into dad's house, you wouldn't even know he was a footballer. I think he only ever had one picture up on the wall in some corner, and that was the 66 squad when mm. they all got together. Just really a warm, lovely man which made the disease even harder to bear. Yeah. yeah. But as a man, as a man, he, um, I would say he'd treat everybody the same. Mm. It wouldn't matter when he was doing his speaking or he was at functions. 
everybody got treated the same, whether they were sporting legends, big businessmen, or the waitress. Everybody got treated the same with Dad. Mm. Um, a real sense of uh, sticking up for the underdog, and he never stopped laughing. He was a comedian's dream. His philosophy was, Pippa, was to enjoy life. Yeah. And uh, he loved every minute of his life. You can see that, can't you? I mean, I've been... I do remember, actually, because I say my mum was sort of very fond of him, but I remember her talking about him, and I remember her talking about that occasion after the World Cup when he hadn't got his teeth in. I don't think your mum was very pleased, was she? Because... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. And I think the first word she said to him after the game, after giving him a big hug, was, couldn't you put your teeth in or something? But um, that was just my dad. As a matter of fact, people say he danced with the World Cup with one hand and his teeth in the other. In actual fact, he didn't. His teeth were in Ian Callaghan's pocket, who was one of, <laughs> one of the players who was in his suit by the side of the pitch. And he, he did recall in one game, one time, he said uh, one of the opposition, he was having a bit of a run-in, and the fella said, I'll kick your teeth in. And my dad said, well, you'd be lucky because they're in a hanky <laughs> and my trousers in the dressing room. Um, but uh, but um, there's a million, a million stories to tell about my dad, lots and lots of stories. One particular time he was going to play, I think it might have been for England schoolboys or something like that, and he was running late. And his dad, who was an undertaker, said, I'll give you a lift. And my dad said that um, the only thing they had available was the hearse. And he, he says it took them nearly an hour to get to the game. They only lived, <laughs> they only lived 20 minutes away. So, But there's a, everybody you meet who knew Dad will probably have a story about him. Mm, mm. Yes, he was obviously a tremendous character. He was a very devout Catholic, wasn't he? Yes, he was a, a devout Catholic growing up. He was still an altar boy, I think, when he was 15, which I suppose... For some of his opponents he played against, they'd find that hard to believe. But uh, he didn't practice so much in his later years. But mm. um, for, for a large part of his life, yeah. His bringing up at the school and the church, St Pat's in Manchester, meant a lot to him. Mm. The mm. values, working class people, mm. no, no egos, just, you know, treat everybody the same, really. Mm. I was going to ask you as well, I mean, you were a footballer yourself as well. How was it being a footballer when you had such a famous footballing dad? Well, the weird thing was, like I say, Dad was no different. He was just Dad when he came home. But when, mm. it was when you went outside, you realise how different they treat him because of what he'd done. Mm. So it was a, it was a strange time growing up. People either wanted to be your pal or or hated you, depending on which team they supported in Manchester. <laughs> so, yes. So it was a it was a bit strange, really. But um, obviously, just just really proud of him, everything he achieved. But um, yeah, people. When somebody's, I don't know, I don't like to use the word famous, but as well known as my dad, a lot of people are affected. Mm. And, uh, and when you're not the person, but you can see it, it becomes very obvious. Yes. Just explain a bit what you mean about that, when, when you're not the person, you see it. Yeah, you, you'd get treated differently, but you were only getting treated differently because your dad was your dad. Yes. So you might talk to somebody one time, then they'd find out, who dad was, and then they treat you differently. Change your attitude towards you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so um, it, a bit strange, but um, just, I suppose, it comes with the territory, really. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so tell me about when you first, as a family, began to notice any symptoms with your dad. I know he'd already had a heart attack, so presumably his health was, you know, beginning to fail a bit, but he was young, wasn't he? And, yeah. Um, and fit, I mean, obviously fit. Well, extremely fit, um, but he had the heart attack. But 
We're finding out more and more now about the footballers and the the CTE. And where the CTE is, it's, it's damage at the front of the brain mostly where it impacts, of course. What is CTE, John? Chronic traumatic encephalopathy. That's the medical condition that was discovered in America. Mm-hmm. And as you said, Willie Stewart said my dad's brain was more or less riddled with it. Yes. And that causes anxiety, causes depression, mood swings. They become The footballers become very ill early on, and it's around about the late 50s, early 60s, where mm. they start to show the symptoms. And Dad's first thing was memory loss, which went, he could still sort of live a fairly normal life. And then 2010, he had a TIA, a big one. Uh, which is a mini-stroke. Mini-stroke. And then... Um, in 2013, he had a really big dip, and I think that was the worst part of all of it because Chris Sutton's dad, I know, was the same, and I know there's other mm. footballers. Mm. Sue Bird said the same about her husband, that they become paranoid, they become scared, they have to be next to their partner, mm. otherwise they're in a real mess. And um, mm. I think that probably was the worst part because he was still compass mentis, but we couldn't console him. Right, because I know your mum Kay has spoken about this as well, hasn't she, and about the way that it annoys her that dementia is portrayed often as two people sitting side by side, holding hands, and one of them just doesn't really remember much. And obviously it's so much more than that. As she said, you know, um, it can be sort of strange aggression, it's agitation, confusion, these things that you're talking about with your dad, and in a way it's very distressing, isn't it, for the loved one, because it is the same person, but their character changes and their personality changes. This image of it being all nice and fluffy and lovely, and it's just, like you say, forgetting things, it it drives us mad because it's... What dementia is, and I know you know this, I know know, everybody knows this, but what it is, let's be honest, it's a terminal brain disease. Mm, Absolutely. It only gets worse, and it's just wrong to try and depict it in this way, even if it's try and get contributions, you know, for charities and stuff. It's a madness, basically, and this person is brain damaged. Mm. And it's toileting in the house, it's all these horrible things. It's, it's just watching the person lose all the faculties. And, it, and it, it's, for some reason, it's treated differently to a, a brain tumour. Mm. I think, you know, there were, there's still, uh, you and I said before... There's still so much stigma around it. You know, people think the stigma's gone, but actually, and maybe it's because of these sort of antisocial aspects of it and things people don't really want to talk about. They don't want to think about them either. And then suddenly it's right in your own household. You know, it's my mum or your dad or your mum's husband. And once it really affects you very personally, then you see what it's all about, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, I think as a society, we've got a serious problem because... I think it must go back to the days when people who weren't well were treated as mad people, as, as, as lunatics. They'd go to asylums, not as poorly people, not as sick people. And to me, that's carried on. I think it's still the same now. Um, for a long time, we didn't want it to get out that Dad was suffering and, w- and was deteriorating. And I think that's just ingrained in our society. Yes, why, why? It's quite interesting that, John. So you're talking about 22. 20- 10, between 2010 and 2015, because you went public, didn't you, in about 2015. What do you think, if you can try and sort of unpack that a bit, why didn't you want to? Was it for your dad's 
dignity. Why did you not want to sort of almost acknowledge it and certainly talk about it? Well, we were concerned that if Dad was given a diagnosis that it would severely affect him. And also, Dad was very famous. He had a high profile and was still working. So there's all sorts of reasons why you might want to say, oh, you know, he's just struggling a bit with memory. And it obviously, we we knew it was getting worse and worse. Yes. And there just is a stigma. People, I I know families now, I know well-known families now Mm. who their husband has been diagnosed with dementia and who still don't want to admit it. And that's fine. That's Mm. up to them. Mm. That's a private matter. If they had Mm. another medical condition, maybe they'd be the same. Mm. But Mm. but there is definitely a stigma Mm. that needs that needs to be removed because mm. if we don't if we don't remove the stigma we're never going to treat these people properly who are suffering with dementia unless we've got to get rid of the stigma and treat it as a as a proper terminal illness yes I, I couldn't agree more which is you know why i do what i do really and i think as i said to some of my other guests you know when somebody like nobby styles family a name that everybody knows talks out about it publicly it takes a lot of courage because it's not your story in a way, it's all about your dad and obviously he's not really able to, to say whether he wants you to talk about it. And it's something quite private you're making very public and you can't put it back in the box either once you've gone public with it. And by doing it, because your dad was so well known, you at a stroke helped to decrease the stigma, I think. Because it's I weird. Hope so. I mean, you do, because it's weird how people, you know, it's like when Barbara Windsor's family decided to, or Prunella Scales, or Terry Pratchett, because then, weirdly, I think the public think they know these people. We don't, but we feel that we do. And so then yeah. you think, well, if it can happen to Nobby Styles, it can happen to anybody, which of course it can. But it then really drives it home to people, I think. Well, well I hope so. There was so much of an outpouring when Dad passed away. We sort of we were taken aback by it. Really, there was a lot of comfort for us in that, but we knew that with Dad's popularity, um, that we might have a chance for our voice to be heard for a while, hmm. and that that's what we tried to do, really. But I, I just just to go back slightly, Pippa, there's another thing that really I think needs addressing. When Dad started getting poorly, there was basically no help for us. We didn't know what to do. Hmm. We didn't know which way to turn. That's so common, we, John, as well. Well, well, just give you an example. When Dad was getting stressed, you know, there might have been times where we didn't know that what you should do straight away is, is sort of just comfort him mm. and try and distract him. Mm. You can't reason with somebody who's not able to reason anymore. Mm. And we didn't know all that. And we, we throughout, we did our best. But if we had it all over again, we would probably probably do things a bit differently. Your organisation obviously is great for this, but there needs to be information. There needs to be education in the same way that people are educated about how you treat somebody who's got cancer, God bless them, or or any other illness. Mm. But there has been hardly any education for dementia families on how to deal with a very, very sick person. Absolutely, John. No, I think, you know, dementia is still struggling to catch up with these other conditions such as cancer. And stigma is, grows out of ignorance and fear, and it all breeds and feeds off each other. And I, that's why I called the podcast, you know, Well I Know Now, because so many people said to me what you've just said, that if they'd known them what they know now, they might have done things differently, and they wish they'd known them what they know now. And so many people know nothing about dementia. So many of my guests who've had a husband or a, or a father or mother with dementia said, you know, 
when we first realised mum had got dementia, we knew nothing about the condition, nothing. Yeah. I don't know whether you heard, John, and I don't know sort of how available they are uh, up in your neck of the woods, but Admiral Nurses? Yeah, yeah. Um, I met a lady on holiday a couple of years ago and she was a, an Admiral Nurse mm. and I, I did contact her. We didn't really end up using the Ad Admiral Nurses. At that time, Dad had sort of gone further than, if you like, they might have been able to help us with. Mm. But we did try and contact them. Uh, I don't know an awful lot about them. I do know that the lady who I met was, was a great lady. They're all um, wonderful. <laughs> They're yeah. specialist dementia nurses and they will come in and they will do exactly what you've just been talking about. You know, they will explain to you and they help a family at times of crisis, but they also educate the family. So they, you know, the nurse would have actually said to you as a family, this is what you do when your dad gets agitated. They would yeah. have sort of taught you, you know. Well, again, again, we only found the, how, who they were by chance when we yeah. were away. Again, as soon as there's a diagnosis, I think perhaps there should be, before a diagnosis even, when somebody starts to struggle, the information should be readily available yes. and given to, the, given to the families. Because the dementia doesn't just affect the person who's got it, it's everybody around them, isn't it? Absolutely true. Yes. Another thing that people say to me is that they wish that when they had the diagnosis, which, as you say, is almost given to a family rather than an individual in, in some senses, that there was somebody that they could just speak to who was a little bit further along the line. Because it's always so yeah. comforting um, if they could just speak to a family or even to the person who had dementia, who was, you know, like six months, a year ahead, who could just say, look, don't panic. Don't worry, you know, your, your life's going to change, but it's not going to end. And, you know, this will help you through it. It would just be so useful. So the other thing I know you want, you feel very strongly about as a family, John, is this whole thing about the way dementia is not classified as a disease. It's called this condition. And it means that you have to be eligible for social care, which is means tested, rather than getting your NHS health care free at the point of delivery. And I, I know you're, you know, trying to raise that issue as well. Well, to me, it's probably the biggest scandal, one of the biggest scandals in this country, what's going on at the moment with regards to the injustice of dementia in terms of how it's treated. I think, um, I'm, I'm not exactly sure of my facts. Promises have been made previously that things would change, but they're not changing, they're getting worse. As, as you know, there's two things, there's social care and there's continued health care. Unfortunately, dementia, so many times, is put into the social care side, mm. which is means tested. Mm. Now, as my mother said in a previous interview, if somebody can't dress themselves, if they can't feed themselves, and they're a danger to themselves, how much more poorly do you have to be? Mm. Mm. There's obviously terrible diseases, but that surely has to count as, mm. a, as a disease that needs continued health care that's free at the point of need. Mm, mm. And basically, it seems to me that the only time that people are guaranteed to get the continued health care, i.e. get the treatment paid for, the, for the care homes or, or whatever with dementia, is when they've been sectioned. I mean, how ridiculous is that and how unfair is that, that that's, that's the case? The NHS is a, is a fantastic institution, but this has to be changed because mm. it's a disgrace. I know you've got support with your campaign, as it were, to try and 
make sure that people with dementia are treated in the same way as anybody else with any other health condition, which of course is what it is. It's a disease. In fact, it's, you know, dementia is an umbrella term for well over a hundred different sorts of brain disease, you know, vascular dementia, Alzheimer's disease, Lewy body disease. So where are you going next with this campaign? I think you've got Jeff Hurst's wife is behind you on this, isn't she? um, We've got, uh, so Jeff Hurst, George Cohen, Hmm. Lady Norma Charlton, they all feel the same as we do. It's got to be changed. If we're living in a so-called civilised democratic society and we're supposed to be looking out after our most vulnerable, there's not many people more vulnerable than people with dementia. Yeah, well said. Mm. And uh, that should be a mark of what sort of a society we are, so it needs to be changed. Yes, we've got their support. We're now looking at ways in which we can try and be a biggest influence. Also, there's a campaign at the moment going for a judicial review and uh, we're supporting that. Philip Matthias is doing that. And at the moment, we're in the early stages of planning which way we go to try and make as much of an impact as we can. What is the campaign with Judicial Review? What's that about, specifically? Uh, it's, it's Rear Admiral Philip Matthias. He went through the dementia situation with his mum, and he wants the continued health care to be given to families with dementia at the point of need. Mm. And um, he's, along with the QC, they're going down the legal route of getting the government to change the way things are. And at the moment, I think he's trying to raise funds so that he can persist with taking it on the legal route because he believes that's the only way that a change is going to be made. That's very interesting. I didn't know that, John, because I was in this sort of unfortunate position of fighting for continuing health care for both my parents. My dad didn't have dementia, but was also, first of all, rejected for it when it was patently obvious that he was at death's door. And uh, my mum my had dementia. Actually, interestingly, I did get it for my mum, but it took a heck of a lot of fighting for. Um, and lots of people said to me, you won't, just really. The only reason I wouldn't was because she had dementia, as you say. Do you know where that's at at the moment, that... Uh... Uh, I believe they've just submitted a, a huge document. If you want to find out about it, if you Google Philip and Matthias, yes. you'll be able to get all the information about it. I don't know exactly what legal stage they're at, but um, they're attacking it more or less as we speak. But um, I do know that they've got some sort of crowdfunding, but they need more funds so they can persist with it. But he's convinced that's the only way that they're going to change it for the tens of thousands of families who who aren't being looked after correctly. That's really interesting. Thank you for that piece of information. I think listeners will be really interested to look that up. Because, you know, one of the things that struck me when I was researching about your dad was how poignant and almost unbelievable it was that this, you know, he was a legend, this sporting great, was forced to sell his his winner's medal and his memorabilia. Uh, presumably well, this was partly... Because of his care, was it? No, not really. It, to be totally honest with you, Pippa, it really wasn't specific to my dad. It, it was a sign of the times and of the players who played in that era because mm. many of the other players sold their medals. Mm. I think off the top of my head, I think maybe there may only be Bobby, Jack and Jeff who didn't sell the medals. So it was something really that they all had to do. At that particular time, as I said before, we had no idea what was coming. So the reason for them doing the medals was, at that particular time, the medals were in a bank, his shirts were in the loft, and they were never seen. Mm. So my dad came to the conclusion that he may as well 
sell them for the family sort of thing. So he wasn't on his own in that. Lots of the other players had to do exactly the same thing. And, of course, that is just a sign of the times and the way the players were treated in those days. Extraordinary to think the difference now, isn't it? The money that they, yeah, the likes of David Beckham get now. Well, I think this is one of the things that really needles me about... The players can get what they want and these short careers, so they should get whatever they can get. But my dad and the like of him, when they played, they were the players who went out on strike in 1961 to get rid of the maximum wage and get better conditions for footballers. Mm. And now these are the very players who are suffering early onset dementia from heading the ball in, in their careers. And that is a to me is a massive irony that the very players who helped change football for the footballers were abandoned for so long. Yeah, that's shocking, isn't it? It is awful. I mean, you may not want to say, but I don't think that, you know, because your dad wasn't treated that well by the club, really, was he either? I did read that he went wanted to take his granddaughter to the her first game at Old Trafford, was told he had to pay for the tickets, which seems pretty cheap. Well, my dad loved Manchester United and he always did all of his life. Manchester United employed him, paid him, and that's the extent of the relationship from that side. Mm. Mm. My dad would never even think about asking for free tickets. And my dad never complained about it. So to him, it wasn't an issue. Other people can draw their own conclusions. Mm. Mm. Well, I think we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... What do you think Nobby would make of it all? In terms of the situation with the injustice with the dementia or...? Well, I suppose all of it, really. I was thinking more in terms of the sort of football and then the enormous wages that footballers get now, but, yes, everything, really. Well, if you're talking specifically about the football, my dad used to get asked that. He became a very successful after-dinner speaker and sometimes they'd do a Q&A and they would say to him, do you wish you were playing now with the money? And my dad's answer was always standard, he'd say, no, the players should get whatever they can. I don't begrudge them a penny. Uh, but I, he said I was the luckiest man in the world because I played in the swinging 60s. I played for the club I loved. I played for the country that I loved. So, to him, I'm getting emotional. But yeah. um, to him, to him, he regarded himself as the luckiest man in the world. Oh, that's such a lovely story, John, because I think that sums up the man, doesn't it? It's the way he lived his life. Yeah, what a giving, lovely person. Well, he's my dad, so I'm obviously going to think that, but I'll just give you an example, Pippa. Dad would go to a function to speak, I'd go with him, and then every single time we went in, if he got a standing ovation, he couldn't understand it. He couldn't understand why people remembered him after so long. And the question that they would always ask him people would come up, and I, I must tell you, I must have heard this thousands of times, they'd say to him, Nobby, do you know where I was when you did your dance with the World Cup? As if he'd have any idea. <laughs> yeah, what a stupid question. But everybody wanted to tell him mm, where they were well. when he did it, like Kennedy. And... I was going to say, it is, it's one of those moments, isn't it, in, in history? Well, it, it seems to be, and, and he would listen to every one of the stories, every single one. He never cut anybody short. He would let them tell the story because that was what... It was a big thing for them to be able to tell him that. Mm. 
and he would never leave a venue until he'd signed everybody's autographs, you know, and uh, that's just the sort of, of man he was, really. Did he realise how good a footballer he was? I think every footballer has to have confidence, but he said one of the greatest pieces of advice he ever had, he played for England schoolboys when he was obviously 15 or, or whatever, and his dad said to him, when you go out there, don't shy away. Look around, take it in, enjoy every minute. And that was my dad's attitude. When I've read about the experts, they say that he sacrificed a lot himself because he was a midfielder. I mean, I used to play hockey at a really terribly low level. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I do understand the way that a midfielder, or in hockey terms, a half, would pass to the striker, yeah. you know, and you'd set up the goal. And when people are talking about your dad, they would say that was his skill, wasn't it? To get the ball and then pass it. Well, in, in football, there's, there's glamorous things that players mm. do. like They score goals or they do flashy things mm. or you know, that, that the fans love. But dad knew what he was good at. He mm. was very, very quick. Mm. He could read the game. He was a great tackler. And one of the things that is not mentioned and often enough, in my opinion, he was a really, really good passer of the ball. Mm. So knowing what you're good at, like you say, in any team sport, dad would do, if you like, the not dirty bits, but mm. he'd do stuff that was necessary. Mm. And then he'd win it and he'd give the ball to Bobby Charlton or they'd give the ball to George Best or mm. Dennis Lund. Mm. Now, those players, the great players who got all the plaudits, which is fair enough because they were great players, they appreciated what my dad yeah. would do. Yeah, oh, so strikers always um, appreciate that, don't they? Yeah, and I think Bobby Charlton was quoted as saying, if, if I was in the trenches... I'd want him next to me. <laughs> That's a good quote. What position did you play, John? Uh, substitute mostly, Pippa. <laughs> I played midfield. I played for Leeds United for five years and then Doncaster Rovers. But I'm in the history books at Leeds United. Uh, my uncle was a great player who played there called Johnny Giles. But I achieved something that my uncle didn't do, or my dad, because I was the very first Leeds United substitute ever to be substituted. Oh, what, you mean you were like somebody else came on? Yeah. So that's how bad I was. <laughs> Why did was that happen? Because I was rubbish, basically. No. <laughs> they do say talent can skip a generation. But... <laughs> well, it obviously um, didn't if you played for Leeds United. Well, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's something, a bit of self-deprecation. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, which you've obviously got from your dad by the sound of it. Well, it, possibly. Um, but just on a more serious note, if you want to come back to it, basically... If I can't finish my crosswords nowadays, I'm concerned. I'm thinking, oh, crikey, mm. you know, am I, am I starting to get symptoms and things like that? And there's a lot of worried footballers out there. Mm. Mm. So you really want to push for that as well, for more research yeah. into the link between foot, foot heading? More research, more importantly, I want help for the families. As you know, I know you had it with your, with your mum and what have you, so you know how hard it is to look after a poorly person with mm. dementia. Mm. So, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's very, very important. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, I, I know it's all still, I can hear it in your voice, John, but it's very raw for you. I mean, you're a very close family. So thank you very much for talking to me today and good luck for everything, you know, with everything you're trying to do to reduce the stigma and increase the knowledge about, around dementia, which is what I try and do as well, and to see some more justice for families of um, people with dementia. Absolutely. And as a family, we won't be letting it go either. We're going to stick at it.
mm. as much as we can to see if we can affect the change. And if I may say to you, please keep up the good work. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure. Well, like father, like son, it seems to me that John Styles has a lot of his dad in him. Down to earth, self-deprecating. I loved his story about being the first ever Leeds United sub to be subbed. But with a fierce determination in John's case to see justice done. Not just for the thousands of families left to struggle alone and scrabble around for their own dementia care, but for the scores of worried footballers out there. Since we recorded the podcast, I'm pleased to say the Football Association has announced that building on Glasgow University research, revealing that footballers are three and a half times more likely to develop dementia, more studies will now be commissioned into understanding the causes of this increased risk. It's worth noting that of England's 1966 World Cup winning team, five have or have had dementia. In December, the FA and UEFA published new guidelines for younger players, including a complete ban on header training for children under 12. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to John, obviously still grieving for his much-loved dad, and I just keep thinking how chuffed my mum would have been if she could have heard me chatting to him. Wouldn't it be wonderful if through Nobby's fame, the Styles family helped to bring about life-enhancing changes, giving us all, were we to need it, even greater cause to celebrate the great man's memory. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast and then together perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.